Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Athletic. The race is on, and starting 14th on the grid was no impediment to Max Verstappen taking what was ultimately a dominant victory in the Belgian Grand Prix. But what made Red Bull so fast, and is this the shape of things to come for the second half of the season? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to tackle those questions and many more are Scott Mitchell-Malm and Mark Hughes. Mark, how are you doing? We haven't heard from you for a, a few podcasts. Had a good weekend? Yes, yes. I've uh, certainly enjoyed watching that race, even though the um, the, the outcome was um, much as a lot of people predicted. It was Fun watching it unfold, watching how it unfolded. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just an extraordinary performance, wasn't it? Yeah, massively so. And lots of question marks over exactly how that happened that we'll get into. But actually, Mark, have you met our new podcast regular, Scott Mitchell Malm? I used to know a guy who looked like him with a similar name, but no, I haven't met this guy yet. Uh, I've seen this new guy's uh, byline on the the race website i hope that he writes a lot more sense than the last guy because the last guy was just absolutely full of it yeah yeah i, I second that i don't know i've read some of the comments on uh, on some of your stories and i'm not sure that the, that the new guy is uh, is convincing people he's sensible but uh, i'll let our listeners take a look at our our writings and make up their own mind yeah i, I mean I, at least i i've in my in my new form, I have appeared on a, a couple of a uh, couple of podcasts now, and I haven't said anything as ridiculous as that guy Scott Mitchell said in our Hungarian Grand Prix uh, review podcast right at the very end, where I emphatically declared that Fernando Alonso would definitely not have an Aston Martin contract um, after the summer break. Yes, we may have clipped that out as well and and uh, played it in our Alonso Science Raston Martin episode, but it's always good to <laughs> bring it back up again. But the basic reason, if you're wondering why Scott Mitchell Malm is Scott Mitchell Malm, it's because he's become a little bit more Swedish by marriage. So congratulations, Scott. Now, Mark, the fact that Max Verstappen set the pace in qualifying by over six tenths of a second and then breezed to the front from 14th on the grid after power unit change penalties tells you exactly how this race was won. It was just sheer pulverising pace. So my question for you is less about how the race was won, but more why was Red Bull, or to be more precise, Verstappen, so stunningly quick at Spa? Three components to that. Um, Max Verstappen himself, um, uh, the, the Red Bull suitability to the track, and Ferrari's underperformance. And um, it was clear that when you strip uh, the downforce off, which you need to do for Spa because of those long, flat-out stretches, um, it became apparent just how much more efficient the Red Bull's aerodynamics are than the Ferraris at that very low downforce level. And that's not something we've seen so far this year. And, um, yeah, it, 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 it's also the fact that uh, the compromise you have to make in the setup for Spa makes uh, for a car which, if you want to have good response through the slow stuff, through the bus stop and the source, it ideally it's going to have a little bit of a an edgy balance through the long, fast um, middle sector. That, and uh, if you're going to set it up like that, you need a driver totally at ease with... Um, a very neutral car at very high speeds, which is quite a demanding thing. And uh, Verstappen was perfect for that. And he was absolutely on a mission coming into the weekend. You know, he came in knowing that he was going to be taking those power unit penalties. So he knew that he couldn't just afford to be the fastest. It was He was going to need to be more than just the fastest. He was going to need to really have no compromise in performance at all. And um, that's what they said about doing. And um, yeah, just just... Uh, fantastic performance and um, Sergio Perez just couldn't live with him in the same car he's running a much more understeering balance through just he was asked after his first Q3 lap uh, Checo 
he was told Max's time, which was about eight tenths faster than his, and he was asked, look, do you want to take some front flap out? And he just he thought about it for a long time and just said, no, I can't carry any more front flap. He just just told you how on edge that car felt to Checo and just what an extraordinary job Max did with it and how it easy was with it. And his direction changed through those um, through those corners was just amazing. It was um, you could just watch it um, on on the screen. It was just unbelievably good. And um, yeah, the other thing was that the uh, increase in track temperature uh, on race day, which turned the race from a likely one stop into a definite two, uh, induced um, massive thermal degradation of the of the tyres. And uh, Max's car was just so much better balanced that uh, it really wasn't an issue for him. And um, yeah, yeah, even even starting on the softs, he was uh, he was still, you know, quite happy running long. And um, yeah, he set a fastest lap on the race with twenty eight kilos, around twenty eight kilos of fuel still on board. It was lap thirty two. And um, you know, when Leclerc tried it on brand new soft tires with you know near empty tanks, right at the end, he was six tenths off that. So it just gives an idea of just how dominant the, the car and Verstappen were. It's absolutely unbelievable that you go into a race with a driver starting 14th and it just felt predictable that he would win. Really, really astonishing. Mm. And just to come back to that Perez comparison, I suggest if anyone re- wants to really see the difference, watch the onboard of their qualifying laps at Pouin. You can just see how much difference. Verstappen just carries so much speed through the corner. He's sort of on that first bit of kerb and just all takes it as one. Perez is like he's in a... In a different car just uh, absolutely unbelievable the um the, the the thing i noticed when i was looking through um sort of verstappen's performance relative to the, to the ferraris but perez as well was was just that just 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 how easy he made it look like that car had so much performance in all three sectors um i, I hadn't really clocked it until there was something i was working on on uh, before we recorded this on, on on Sunday evening, where I needed to go back over qualifying, and, and I know fastest laps in the race are a bit misleading, but the, their fastest sectors in qualifying and their fastest sectors in the race, and I was stunned to see that Le, that Verstappen was just quicker than all of them in every single sector, and I just feel like that's such a rare thing to see uh, at Spa for the reasons that have been been talked about. It was just Verstappen sort of making a mockery of how difficult it's meant to be to balance a, a, a car like this. He was just, he was just supreme. Leclerc said something like, "Red Bull were on another level this weekend," but I don't think that's fair. I think Verstappen was because Perez had the same car and and just and didn't look like that at all. And the thing is, you can have situations where a car and driver package have the pace, but there's so many things you can trip over. But drivers of Verstappen's caliber. Just make it look so easy. And and that's what I really liked about Verstappen's drive. I, I was on board with him for the majority of the race, but in particular at the start, paying very close attention at the start. And Ed, you said earlier that it's amazing to to be to go into a race like this and, and think that the guy in starting 14th is inevitable they're gonna win. I we we've seen Lewis Hamilton at the peak of the Mercedes dominance have races that have become complicated, like he's fallen into the pack or he started further down. Ne- never quite this low but you know those races where he just gets the job done he sort of ticks away he's patient in the beginning he waits he survives and then if he's had to fall back a little bit so be it because you take one step or two steps backwards to take several forwards and Lewis was always really good at this I think that one of the best examples I can think of off the top of my head was that drive in in Turkey to to win the championship in in 2020, where he just almost had to wait for everything to to come his way, and he was just so good and so effective with it. And the reason I bring that up is purely because I I, I can't think of any higher praise to give Verstappen than than compare this drive to that caliber of drive. Arguably, this was better because it was further down on the grid. Yeah, there was a safety car, but that only really mitigated a, a small amount of of gap that had um, that, that had developed on the opening lap. Um, and obviously, it was it was a, a dry race with, with with no other drama. And yet, Max was able to pick his way through in just just such a methodical way. The the first lap in front of him was absolute chaos. Cars all over the place. Cars rejoining off. From the gravel, uh, a car pulling over to the side and slowing down. He was having to jink left and right to react really quickly to what was in front of him. 
judge how aggressive to be. There was a, he, he put a, he put a great move on on Leclerc after briefly losing out to him in the middle of the the, the lap. But in all of that, he still managed to rise from 14th on the grid to to to, to eighth at the end of the the first lap. He had a great launch, and it was just he he just did a superb job of turning a focus on survival into a focus on very, very efficient progress up the order and then just searing pace once it opened up in front of him. It was just, it was an absolutely perfect drive. He, he It was a total, total masterclass and a sign of just how good a driver Verstappen is, but also just how confident and almost freely he's driving now as this season progresses. He's a world champion, but he looks like someone who is just absolutely reveling in the way that this season is developing. You mentioned, Mark, all the reasons why the Red Bull was so strong. Do you think this is just a, a one-off because of the nature of the circuit? It's an unusual compromise circuit between the first and third sectors and the middle one. Or could this be just a sign that Red Bull are going to be crushingly dominant? It's going to be a Vettel second half of 2013 style run. I, I suspect that the advantage we saw this weekend is going to be the biggest we'll see this season. Um, but I also suspect that, um, you know, the the, the soul searching and the um, the big, you know, crisis meetings that will be happening at Ferrari as they try to figure out, you know, how to try and combat this um, will probably only increase Red Bull's um, confidence. And I think we'll, we, we, we will, in terms of uh, results, probably still see a, a, a dominant Verstappen in the second half of the season. But I think in terms of raw performance, I don't think we're going to see anything like we saw at Spa this weekend. I think this was just absolutely perfect for reasons that only became evident through this weekend. Um, but, you know, in terms of the, the performance of the car, various ride heights and with, with um, very low uh, downforce levels on it, um, it, 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 this really was only exposed as this as the weekend got underway. Um, but I don't think any of those things will really apply um, in the remaining races. Um, Monza, obviously Ferrari's low downforce package will um, be even lower downforce. And, it, it, you know, the, the, there must be a worry about that for them. But uh, the, the other tracks, no, I would expect them still to be back where they were, sort of, you know, um, competing with Red Bull on, on pace. But... Uh, Red Bull and Verstappen are just, you know, operating at a higher level, even when the performance is roughly the same, which it wasn't this weekend, obviously. But even when it when they are, they they're just, you know, we've seen it, it, it far too many races now to to come to any other other conclusion. So now I I see them continuing to dominate the results, just. But I think this will go down as absolute peak uh, peak advantage. Christian Horner said after the race that it felt reminiscent, in fact, the most reminiscent since the time of that dominance in kind of 2013, 2011 time when Red Bull was just absolutely demolishing the opposition. It's just with the difference that it came from down the grid. Scott, let's talk a little bit about Ferrari's race. Science in third place was about as good as he could could have done, wasn't it? The Ferrari wasn't going to be beating Red Bulls. But there were times when he flirted with falling into the clutches of George Russell. But with Leclerc, there were also some blunderous moments, weren't there? Yeah, this felt like another race where the sort of inherent pace of that car was obvious over the course of the weekend. Yeah, it wasn't on the Red Bull level, but obviously it was still comfortably clear of anyone else. And ultimately, um, Sainz was able to get ahead of Perez and, and claim that net pole position once um, Verstappen was was out of the picture. And and then yet the race, it just slightly unravels a little bit. Um I th- my my big takeaway from not the Grand Prix itself because I guess you could probably see it happening, but what Bonotto was saying afterwards is I feel like tire management is a really big concern for them at the moment. Unless I'm remembering it incorrectly, I thought that looked like it might be a bit of a strength of the Ferrari at one point at the very start of the season, but I think from Miami onwards, pretty much Miami onwards, the Red Bull has looked generally stronger, and I do think it's an underrated strength for Verstappen's as as well, but. There's just a big emphasis at the moment of understanding why they're not getting the tyres to work as expected. Obviously, in Hungary, it was a it was a different issue. Here, did seem to be that they were working the tyres too hard, and I think that was just ultimately what pegged signs back. As for Leclerc, I mean, yeah, he was. You, I, I felt like he was a bit frustrated about the 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 way his race was was 
was handled and but but again his focus still afterwards just every time kept coming back to that deficit to 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 Red Bull and being absolutely baffled about how the Red Bull had, had got that quickly this actually felt like one where yeah the Ferrari's handling of the race probably wasn't perfect and there was obviously some a dispute between Leclerc and the team later on maybe you can explain that in a little bit more detail Ed because I'm rambling on a little bit here but it felt like one of those races where even though there were imperfections on the on the Ferrari side this was at le- legitimately one where the at the underlying performance is a bigger concern that was the argument they tried to spin in Hungary but I didn't feel like that was fair whereas here I think it's legitimate to question a few key reasons why the performance wasn't quite there yeah so it's, it's interesting any strategic problems or mistakes are second order to the pace I'd agree with that although there are still some question marks we'll, we'll speak to Mark in a moment a bit more about the strategy but there was that great conversation with the clerk about whether he was going to pit what tires he was going to go on and eventually they extended but it's good to hear Leclerc really trying to assert himself and maybe Ferrari trying to elicit his opinion a little bit more to help him to do that but of course it was that late pit stop the switch to the soft tires for a, a punt at fastest lap that was the thing that was that Ferrari was criticised for because he came out, ended up behind Alonso, had to pass him, beat Alonso to fifth on the road, then got the penalty for having sped in the pit lane, which actually brings us back to the tear-off, doesn't it? Yeah, because um, there was a, a, a burnt sensor, I think, that um, basically meant that he was, was in like 0.1 over the speed limit. And um, it was very unfortunate, but it's it just feels classic Ferrari, doesn't it, that Leclerc picks up a 5 play a five second penalty that costs him a position and two points because of a pit stop he didn't want to make but Ferrari did so they could gain one point for fastest lap which that, they didn't gain yeah so so it's just that just feels very Ferrari in the middle of a very Ferrari weekend yeah it's just one of those things and the pit stop for Leclerc wasn't particularly slow that the in pit lane time was within the bounds of of normality it wasn't stunningly quick but it also wasn't particularly slow so yeah a high risk for for grabbing that point and it, and it bit them uh, mark as always we have some questions from the race members club to answer head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen and click on join the race to find out more our first question is from sean murphy who asks do you have any idea why ferrari put science on hards while at the same time they put leclerc on mediums given science was going to come under threat from Russell it seemed an odd decision starting on softs meant he could have used mediums for the rest of the race now Mark this refers to that double shuffle pit stop Ferrari did on lap 25 for Science's final stint doesn't it so can you explain that disparity I think probably Science's concern because his rear tyre deg was so extraordinarily high much higher than um, anticipated was he wanted to ensure he, he got to the end basically <laughs> That sounds ridiculous, but it was it was really very very high the, the deck. So he went he went on the hards. I think in Leclerc's positioning, you know, they could afford to be a bit more um, adventurous. So they 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 were thinking of you know, trying to trying to move forwards rather than defending um, from what Sainz had to do against Russell. But fundamentally, the car was just not working very well, and there wasn't a clear right answer because. The tyre picture was, you know, so volatile and so much different to um, anything that had been modelled by anyone. And the final question on Ferrari, Scott, comes from Sarah Morris, who says, first of all, great race, and I'm so glad Spa is on the calendar for yet another year. That, of course, is the news that Spa will be on the 2023 calendar, given Kyle Army won't be happening next year. But the actual question is, was the Ferrari strategy good enough today or was that the best they could manage? Uh, I I I think that was probably about right. The ultimate ultimately weren't quick enough, and what and Leclerc's race was compromised early on by that tear off. So Signs was Signs was never going to beat Verstappen, probably never going to beat Perez once Perez pulled his finger out. Like I don't really think it should have ever been in doubt that Perez was going to beat Signs, but on but Perez made life harder for himself with it by not being good enough in qualifying, and then had a really poor first lap. Um, so that's what I guess gave signs a sniff, but I didn't really feel it was ever realistic with the pace delta between the cars. And then, yeah, as I say, Leclerc was always on damage limitation job in that race with a slightly slower car than Verstappen and a less potent one in the straight line. And then it got massively complicated early on with that pit stop um, under the safety car. So, yeah, I, I think you can still poke holes in the way Ferrari handled this race, but it wasn't the defining factor. Yeah, strategy doesn't make your car faster and... 
a faster car makes strategy a lot easier. That's just the way of things in Formula One. Well, Scott, before we get into the Mercedes troubles specifically this weekend, let's have a quick look at the first lap incident that put Lewis Hamilton out of the race. He clashed with Fernando Alonso at Lecom. So what's your verdict on that? It was Lewis's fault. Yeah, there was, um, I don't think there's any, any any doubt on that. I, I At first, when I when I saw it the first time, I thought maybe um, Alonso had just understeered into him because he didn't really get a good shot of it when it was live or what what I saw wasn't very clear. But then as soon as you got into the onboards or even to be honest, like a replay from the external cameras, it was just very clear. Lewis has either misjudged exactly how much space Alonso was left on the inside, or he thought he was clear and could just turn in. Um, but it was, it was slam dunk Lewis's fault. Um, Fernando could not have been more to the right. Um, he was actually on over the inside curb he was completely under, uh, completely in control. There was no sign of Alonso um, understeering out, and um, just uh, just a silly misjudgment from Hamilton. I mean, it happens on the opening lap, I suppose. Um, the stewards sort of dismissed it as a first lap incident. That's why they opted not to include a penalty. And Fernando afterwards, to be fair, I know he was very very angry at the time, and he called Lewis an idiot, and he said that this guy only knows how to you know lead from the front, basically which I thought was a little bit uncharitable. Um, but after the race, Fernando was a lot more sort of circumspect about it and said, these things do happen. I don't think it was, as it wasn't intentional or anything like that. He seemed to accept that Hamilton had just, just made a mistake, but it absolutely was Hamilton's fault. There's, there's, there's no getting around that. And he's, um, it's a big and costly blunder because I don't think that Mercedes was ever going to really be in the fight for a podium, but he would have beaten Russell. It would have been big points for the team. And it's a, a, a fairly rare case, um, it has to be said, but a case nonetheless of, of, of Hamilton letting him and Mercedes down. Yeah, an open and shut case and a little bit of natural justice because it put Hamilton out of the race and Alonso was able to continue undamaged and, of course, got fifth place. In the end, Mark, Mercedes headed here to spar with some optimism with the technical director introducing the porpoising metric and the changes to the floor to stop people taking liberties with the plank as well as of course some promising performances before the break but in qualifying the car was was horrendously slow so what went wrong and why was George Russell then suddenly able to threaten science on his way to fourth in the race given what happened on Saturday it's the it's the bugbear of tyres again and it's you know the, the, the pattern that we've seen throughout the season it's the Mercedes really, this Mercedes really, really struggles to uh, switch the tyres on. You can see how aggressive both drivers were being on their outlaps in practice and in qualifying. Um, and that's the same reason, it's just not putting the energy into the tyres, and that's the same reason it's actually reasonably good on, on range. It's not that the car becomes better, it's just that it's treating its tyres gently. It's still, it's still an inherently slower car than a Ferrari or a Red Bull, but it, it sometimes can show artificially well against them because it's it's just given the tyres an easier time. And when, when that's a factor, when the range of the, your, your stint range is, is a factor in, in the race, then, then it, it can become a, 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 a more convincing looking car. And um, because Ferrari was struggling so much with tyre deck here um, and Mercedes slightly less so, it gave George Hoff a sniff of a chance at, um, you know, at attacking science, and he got sort of. I think he got the closest was one point eight seconds, but then ran a bit wide, and then it takes takes you another three laps to get back up again, and yeah, he just basically ran out of laps. Um, but it, it, the the car wasn't any worse or better relative to the Ferrari than uh, that it usually is. It was just light years behind the Red Bull. Yeah, and just shows as well that Mercedes still has some things they need to get on top of. The tyre situation has been something they've struggled with a bit in the past, so lots of work still to do there. Well, let's catch up with progress on Grid Rival, which is a fancy motorsport game that the race has its own league in. My team only managed 885 points this week, despite what I thought was a pretty strong lineup of Verstappen, Perez, Sainz, Leclerc, Albon and Williams. Was it enough to beat you, Scott? Uh, I think I've managed to beat you, despite forgetting to set a talent driver. I think I may have done the same. Ah, okay. It was meant to be Albon. Yeah, because you I were blundered. bragging and saying, "Oh, yeah, 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 Albon, talent driver." Um, no, I had a, I had a pretty good week, despite despite Hamilton's DNF, which cost me because I had Mercedes as my team. Uh, I had quite a good week. Um, 
and it would have been actually a really good week if I'd got the double points for for Albon as a talent driver. So yeah, I was yeah, it's fine. Um, I'm I'm just I I'm so bad at playing the um the budgets, the rise and falls in this game uh, that I forget that every week I remember. Yeah, you need to hit the rises, and then you've got, and you can just constantly build a stronger and stronger team. Because I see some of the top teams in this league, and they've got basically everyone that's mega. And how do you afford these people? And then I see that their team value is just miles higher than mine. But then by the time it comes to then pick the team, I then get really excited, release a bunch of tuggers, pick some people that I really want, and all of a sudden my team value is nothing again. I yeah. never learn. <laughs> There's a lot of strategy in this game. It's not just about picking who you think is going to do well on a given weekend, which is what gives it that extra. Bite. The leader in our league is still Raniel Dicardo, with Alonso, Leclerc, Verstappen, Ricardo, Russell, and Red Bull as part of a pretty mighty lineup. So well done there. Grid Rival is still open for signups if you'd like to join in for the rest of the season. So download the Grid Rival app or visit the website so you can get involved. The links in the episode description for this podcast. Well, Scott, after being in the headlines for all the wrong reasons for losing drivers at a rate of knots, Alpine actually had a pretty good weekend. Alonso was fifth after that Leclerc post-race penalty, and Ocon seventh despite his grid penalty. Chris Parrott asks, what does it say about Alpine versus McLaren championship battle that Norris and Ocon started alongside each other on the grid, but the latter made it to seventh and the former was stuck in twelfth? It seemed to me that McLaren compromised Ricardo's strategy to bring in Norris ahead of him in the final round of stops. Is this the kind of service he can expect for the remainder of the season, given he's out at the end of the year? I'm actually, no, no, that's that's not what happened. That They didn't pit Ricardo to put in behind Norris or anything like that the way that the race was playing out for Ricardo they were trying something I think a bit maverick to to get ahead of Albon and actually get him into the the top 10 but it didn't work it cost him um it cost him track position he didn't have anywhere near as much of a of a pace advantage on a on a tire offset and that car was slow in a straight line because there was a problem McLaren brought a bunch of lower drag parts to this weekend for this weekend including a new rear wing um, but Ricardo's had a problem that had to be changed on Saturday and they only had one for each driver um, at Spa. So Ricardo had to go to a slightly higher downforce and therefore slower rear wing, which left him a sitting duck and left him basically unable to to really attack on the straight. So once he'd given up the track position in that late pit stop, he couldn't gain the, the, the positions back. But that, uh, that situation only arose because Ricardo had lost some track position early on, dropped behind Albon in the first place. So... It was quite complicated for, for, for Ricardo. He knew basically from lap five, the, the which was, I think, the safety car restart lap or the lap after that, uh, that he was in for a long afternoon because he could see that unless he was in the toe and had DRS, he was just absolutely helpless on, on the straights. So I don't think that was a sort of attitude thing from McLaren towards Ricardo. I think this weekend, McLaren just lacked, a bit like Baku, where the 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 defining element of um, their weekend was that they didn't have the pace in the high speed parts. They didn't have the pace really this weekend either. And whereas the Alpine just looked really potent uh, throughout, so it was a great weekend for Alpine. Really strengthened their bid for fourth in the championship. And at the moment, I would say that McLaren is not looking lost, but is really on the back foot in that fight. And my uh, fictional money would be on Alpine at the moment because that car just looks. Like quite strong. It just looks like a really nice all-round car and it seems to be working everywhere as the McLaren's going through these peaks and troughs. Yeah, and every time they put new parts on the car, they seem to work as well, which hasn't always been a strength in the past. We should briefly mention the imminent contract recognitions board activity regarding Oscar Piastri's deal. Of course, he is off to McLaren. Alpine claim they have him under contract. We're expecting that to be well, not entirely dealt with, but the, the CRB will look at it on Monday. We may have news on Monday about what they rule. What are you expecting to happen there, Scott? Um, well, from everything I've heard and the what people are saying on the record and what you're reading between the lines, I'm expecting the CRB to side with McLaren. And therefore, I would therefore expect pretty soon after that, Oscar Piastri will be announced as a McLaren driver for 2023. Um Alpine does still have a chance. I don't think it's um I don't think it's one hundred percent in McLaren's favour by by any means. You never know how these things are gonna go. I don't know what's in the contract. Very, very, very few people have seen the full Piastri Alpine contract. So who knows what the CRB and their um the the the, the members of that panel will actually conclude. But my expectation would be that CRB sides it does side with 
McLaren on Piastri. Beyond that, even if the CRB sided with Alpine, I don't think Piastri will be an Alpine driver next year. I think whatever happens, Alpine will be in the McLaren next season. I think the CRB will just have go a long way to deciding how much McLaren has to pay for that privilege. And we will have probably another podcast with news of what happens there when we know exactly what's going on. Piastri, we should add, was on simulator driver duty for Alpine. He didn't come to the circuit, but he was there in Enstone making his contribution, doing his work. So still very much part of the team for now, at the very least. Now, Mark, Aston Martin, still not especially competitive, particularly in qualifying, a bit stronger in the race, but Sebastian Vettel managed a pretty tidy eighth place ahead of Alpha Tauri's Pierre Gasly. Do you think that's evidence he's determined not to coast in the closing half season of his F1 career? Yeah, I think so, probably. Um, although um, the last few races, Stroll has been the quicker qualifier and looked generally the, the quicker guy um, until uh, the first lap of the weekend when he when he went on uh, onto the gravel and lost a load of places. But, um, yeah, I mean, if, if, if Seb gets an opportunity, he still puts in the very, very tidy drives, doesn't he? And um, the car was good on its tyres relative to the cars around it. And I think he was a little bit surprised at how he was able to comfortably keep up with um, Alonso's Alpine. Um, but, yeah, if, if, if the car's halfway there, he'll, he'll deliver the results. He'll, he will always, you know... Um, be a contender to put the car where it where it should be. You missed out one crucial fact there, Mark, that Stroll took a bite of the gravel after being slightly put there while running wheel to wheel with his teammate. So a little bit of intra-team rivalry there. I asked Mike Crack about that. He said that sometimes that will happen. He wasn't too <laughs> worried about it, but good to see some some fierce fighting uh, going on there. But Scott, we really do need to talk about Williams because they had a eight race points drought coming into this race. Alex Albon finished 10th, having qualified 6th, well, started 6th. He qualified ninth fastest, but in Q3 on merit, he spent most of the race under pressure from various people. So how impressed were you with his nuncial pass act? Uh, not as impressed as I was with his, the picture that he tweeted um, after the race. I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a neatly photoshopped. It, it's very difficult to, to, to spot the photoshop. Um, I recommend people go on uh, Alex's Twitter and, and find it, but it's basically a, an, an edited image where the Williams is considerably wider than it is in in in, in reality. I thought that was good, uh, good social mediaing from 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 Alex to follow up his um, Piastri mocking and confirmation of his Williams deal earlier in August. So he's getting the hang of Twitter, um, but he's also getting the hang of this Williams. He, I thought he was very very good this weekend. Excellent in qualifying. Sent um, a really good. Um, message for what he and Williams can achieve on their on their good days. He described it as if we're perfect. This is what we're we're capable of. So his first Q3 appearance, his uh, the, the the team's first Q3 appearance in the dry. Um, so it was a merited top ten start. Yes, the sixth place on the grid was because of penalties, but absolutely merited being in in Q3. And then a great great drive. To, to, to nick that point it's not much to write home about in the grand scheme of things but when you look at the fact I think he made one or two errors in that race and did cost himself a position at one point was it to Esteban Ocon uh, but in general really really strong drive and does deserved a point that's what was really good about it he didn't luck into a position and then hang on he just did his absolute best to fight gravity which was always going to be difficult to do and the upshot was um, a, a result that for the first time in a few races breathes a bit of life into Williams' season. This is a, is a bit circuit-specific. That car is so fast in the straight line. To use something Alex has said a few times this year because it doesn't really have any downforce compared to the other cars. But who cares? He made the most of it. He did a great job um, and he frustrated a lot of people in faster cars. Yeah, there are a lot of things that Williams did right as well as Alvin this weekend. They bought a... Relatively cheap upgrade was what Dave Robson, the head of vehicle performance, described it as. Basically, they cut down their their rear wing and that gave them the, the reasonable compromise between straight line speed and at least being able to get around that middle sector without losing too much time. They were not quick in the middle sector, but they were at least quick enough not to give away any of what they gained elsewhere. But Alex Albon actually had the fastest sector time of all in qualifying 
in the first sector, and I think he was sixth fastest in the final sector. So that tells you how quick that car was, good braking stability. They got the tyres working well. And actually, Albon probably should have done a little bit more in qualifying, but he just took an absolute all-out attack approach to Q3. He knew he was going to be six on the grid, whatever he did. So it was a bit of a, a free hit, really. And then in the race, he was getting lots of tyre management instructions in terms of, right, you've got to manage this, you've got to manage this. He had quicker cars behind him, but yeah, I can't say he didn't put a foot wrong because he did have that big lock-up you alluded to, Scott. Went wide at the source, which let Ocon pass, but he's doing very well to keep Ocon behind because that Alpine was quick and pretty quick on the straights. I spent a lot of the race watching on boards with that group behind Albon, seeing how good people were at passing him. Ocon was probably the one that was giving him the most trouble of everyone who was behind him. But yeah, very, very positive for Williams. A little bit of a shame for Nicholas Satifi that... He was hoping for a decent result, but had that spin on the second lap that wiped out poor old Valtteri Bottas uh, early on, which was unfortunate. And, of course, difficult day for Alfa Romeo, given Joe Guan Yu, the other Alfa Romeo, was in that queue behind Alex Albon with Lance Stroll at the, the front of it in, uh, in 11th place. And we should briefly mention Alfa Tauri and Pierre Gasly. Difficult weekend for them. But ninth place, well executed from Gasly, considering he started from the pits unexpectedly. What, what did you make of that, Mark? The, the Alphatari is a bit all over the place at the moment, isn't it? And they've just salvaging a few points for them would have been a bad weekend last year, but now it feels like a bit of a triumph. Yeah, exactly. It, it's it's a mediocre car, really. Um, and it's, you know, you, you, at Spa, you can at least play around with the, you know, the, the trade-off between the downforce and the, and the straight line. And um, you get, if you if you've got a driver that can hang on to it through the twisty bits, you probably put an average car a little bit above where it should be. Um, and he, he was quick through the practices, but when you didn't get it quite into Q3, but um, yeah, it was a it was a very nice comeback race from the from the garage because um, he thought with about ninety seconds to go he wasn't going to be taking part, so they did the thing just cut out and had to be pushed off the grid. Um, some sort of electrical problem, and uh, but yeah, but he did a he did a good job. Um, I think probably apart from obviously Verstappen's um, comeback, uh, you know, from a, a poor grid start, and uh, the other one worth uh, a shout out has got to be Esteban Ocon because he he did those two double passes. He passed uh, two cars in one move twice. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, well-executed race from him. In the end, he actually got told that the Alpines will be holding position because he was catching up. The strategy was slightly different, but he was catching Alonso at a rate of knots late on and they were given the instruction that they would not be uh, changing positions, which actually was quite wise because there was not really anything to gain. And actually, if they'd started battling, perhaps Alonso wouldn't have been in a position to benefit from uh, from the Leclerc situation late on. So very well managed by Alpine as well. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at Grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Well, as always, we're going to finish off the podcast with a little blast of questions. Mark, the first one is for you from Chris Partridge, who said a few weeks ago, I sent you a question about whether it's time for Mattia Bonotto to go. At the time, Mark disagreed. Following Ferrari's latest blunder, pitting Leclerc for soft and losing fifth place to Alonso, does this now change your mind? No, because he's got the two most difficult bits absolutely right after years of Ferrari getting getting them wrong. Um, which is the pace of the car, the technical prowess of the team, 
and the, the the culture where people aren't working in fear, but that's they're the, they're the two bits which have traditionally hamstrung Ferrari in recent times, and he's got those. He has is, is managed to get those right. In getting rid of that culture of fear, they haven't replaced it with what is needed, which is um, a realistic um, acceptance of the problem without it being made personal. Um, so it just seems as though it's not um, not addressed. Any problems aren't being addressed. Um, I'm sure that I'm sure they're trying, but it, it, it's not. Um, it's not a rigor, rigorous enough process, but that is just a process problem. Um, whereas things like um, getting a, a car which is a cutting-edge design um, against teams of the caliber of Red Bull and Mercedes is probably one of the most difficult things you could ever dream of doing, and he's done it. So absolutely not. No, he maybe needs some support. He maybe needs to draw in expertise um, from somewhere else. But I think you'd be throwing the baby out with the bathwater and just changing light bulbs like that. Next question is for you, Scott, from Ben Johnson, who says, this is the first F1 race following Spa's extensive circuit renovations. What's the verdict from a racing and trackside experience point of view? Well, I think one of the best things about this is that no one really noticed the difference of Vau Rouge and Radion, which, which is exactly the intention. It's not meant to detract from a from a challenge, from a spectacle point of view. It's just meant to make it a bit safer in the runoff. And then if anybody has a crash, um, then the car would be better contained and it wouldn't be bouncing back into the, or, or rather it wouldn't be bouncing back onto the racing line because there would be a bit more room. So that was, I think, honestly, the biggest takeaway for me was that you didn't notice that. Um one of the things that I really liked, uh, which I don't believe is a change made for Formula One, it's, they've, they've added a lot of these gravel traps and, and tweaked a lot of the runoff areas, mainly for, mo- they're not MotoGP, sorry, but motorcycle racing to, to, to bring um, a high level of motorcycle racing back to Spa. But I loved seeing that gravel trap on the outside of La Source because I, and I know what you're going to say, because you're probably going to chime in with the same thing you've been saying all weekend, which is going to be a Mansell reference to banning them from using the runoff. But I hated the sight of all the cars disappearing onto the runoff on the exit of La Source. You see it in all kinds of categories. We see it in F1 as well, where someone just lets it run wide and boots the throttle and gains some places, or at least doesn't lose anything by running out wide. And I think that's absolute nonsense. And look at that. We put a physical deterrent on the outside of La Source, and no one went wide on the on the opening lap. It's almost as if proper track limits take care of the issue. So I was really, really happy with that. On the... On the racing side, this wasn't really the racing verdict. Isn't really related to any of the circuit re- renovations. It's just a a spa thing with these cars. Um, the racing wasn't great. Um, the problem with the twenty twenty two cars is you can follow more closely, but the toe effect in general is is less. So a lot of the drivers said after the race that you just got stuck in a train. So it wasn't the most exciting Grand Prix. I am happy that the track is staying on the calendar because I do think it's a classic venue. Um, but something about it just doesn't work in terms of creating great racing on a regular basis. Too few too many DRS drive-bys and that kind of thing. But again, I think that's sort of an inherent F1 at Spa thing rather than, a, than a, anything that changed on the circuit for this year. Yeah, my Mansell reference, of course, was to 2010, the first year of driver stewards, and he was the driver steward here, and he pushed really hard in the driver's briefing about not using the runoff at La Source on the first lap, which had been important in Raikkonen's victory the previous year. There was lots of complaining about it, oh, we need it, et cetera, et cetera. Sure enough, a bunch of the best drivers in the world all got around La Source without taking liberties. So that's quite a good reason for having the gravel trap there because that kind of plays the Nigel Mansell role. But Mansell, of course, was bang on in 2010 and the gravel trap is right in 2022. Mark, question from Roger Harvey who says, do you expect drivers taking penalties for engine changes at Spa, of which there were many, to make their new units last until the end of the season? Um, In in certain cases, yes. Um, In in the case of the... uh the Ferrari ones, um, n- not necessarily. No, um, I think it, it's, there's still an unresolved issue within that power unit. So, yeah, I'd expect more penalties later in the season. We're well, coming to you, Scott. Also on power unit penalties from Sander van Huyten, 
With all the power unit related penalties this weekend, has the three power units per season limit not completely lost its purpose? If none of the teams are able to finish the season without using at least a fourth one, and with the number of races per season growing, should the limit not be raised to four or five be I, used? I think the I think the limit could go up to four. I, I don't really see the purpose of keeping it at three for now. Um as a general rule, trying to get it, it was already a stretch to get seven events out of a power unit. Um, when you then factor in that certain elements change for this year, like the new fuel, which I think has had an impact on the reliability and performance of the internal combustion engine in particular. Uh, and then you look at the fact that the calendar is gradually creeping up and, uh, I might be remembering this incorrectly, or I might be, um, conflating two different regulations but i'm sure there is a mechanism in the the regulations that if races go beyond a certain amount you are meant to go up and down on on limits we had was it last year we had the extra mguk came in um that was that was two i think before but that went up to three so there is clearly flexibility within the regs to 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 adjust it based on the realities i i need to double check to see who is actually on course at the moment for a penalty free season but i I can't imagine it's anyone except a few Mercedes drivers because the Mercedes has been really reliable this year. So it's clearly doable, but I don't know. I just feel like when there are lots of other things, keeping costs down, cost cap on the team side, soon there'll be a cost cap for the manufacturers, every increasing limits on dyno hours and this kind of thing. A fourth power unit is just a nice little safety because it's going to be they're, they're being used anyway, so it's not like we're say we're we're saving the team's money. They're just they're using them and then just taking the penalty. So it just seems a bit silly. Now there's an engine freeze as well. You could argue they can go up because one of the counter arguments is that if you say it's three power units, they'll design it to be a little bit on edge and think, well, we'll take a fourth if we need to. If you make it four, then it tips into five and you just keep kicking the uh, uh, the range down as you increase the numbers. But with the engine homologation, perhaps there is now scope to do that without having that effect because you can't change the engine. Next question mark comes from Thomas Knights, who says, given that the second Williams seat definitely appears to be up for grabs, is Nicholas Latifi not taking the chance to really prove he deserves another year? Albon is driving brilliantly, but I feel Latifi should be a lot closer to him than he has been today. Uh, yes, you probably got a point. Um, he's, uh, he's, he's been given an ample opportunity really to establish himself and hasn't really got a foothold. He's little little... Um, glimpses of, of promise and every now and again, but um, no, I think uh, if they if they don't need to um, take on a budget for that seat, uh, yeah, I think he's um, he's his seat is most definitely in danger. Yeah, yeah, it's another one of those weekends where, as you say, some flashes of promise, and then you look at the final result in the race, and he's down in 18th after that mistake. He said it was a bit like driving in the wet with the grip levels he he had and he was a bit disappointed with how qualifying went given he was eliminated in Q1 but yeah it's very difficult to make a case for Nicholas Latifi hard worker as he is and uh, and good chap as he is Scott a question from Matt Wyatt who says maybe this one is for an in-between races podcast well we're going to do the short version uh, here I think this every year at the Belgian Grand Prix. Why do we need DRS at Spa? I see the benefits of DRS as the least bad solution, which enables overtaking, but I feel like it actively ruins the race at Spa. The cars can overtake plenty well without it. Watching cars cruise past one another down the Kennel Strait is so painful. Couldn't we trial not having it at, for example, Spa in Montreal and see how we go? Well, Matt must have preempted the answer I gave um, just now because I, I agree that the DRS is too powerful at a, a circuit like this. I do... I wonder if the way you could do it is you could maybe you could judge it on I don't know length of straight. So if the straight is shorter than a certain length, you have a, D, a you know the DRS is on on that straight. But if it isn't, then it's optional. Effectively, you 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 can you can kill it because that would just give you a nice little binary regulation to apply, and then it's not totally ad hoc. Um, I wouldn't do it at Montreal necessarily, but I think Spa and Monza, and the reason I'm picking those two is because these they're, they're the two that spring to mind as ones that have horrible DRS trains. Because everyone every year we have some people just surprised that there's no rate good racing at Monza or the, the overtaking is really difficult there. And I think if you left it open to 
But I mean, this is a very oversimplified way of saying it, but effectively the natural aerodynamic efficiency of the cars, I think that would just be a bit more interesting. And then that would also encourage teams to be a little bit more aggressive with wing choices and this because you're not having that that assistance. There was one point today where, where was it? Was it Russell who was who came off a of Radion behind Alonso and had Perez behind him and he was right in the Alpine slipstream, I think. I, I might be remembering this incorrectly, but I'm sure it was that kind of combination of cars. And the car, and the, I think it was the Mercedes, which is slower in the straight line than the Alpine, just looked really poor down, down the straight. It wasn't really gaining. That was, I think that must have been at a point where there wasn't DRS or something. But it just, it, it just stood out to me just watching the way the cars were because that was just that showed just what the different wing levels and the the actual just fundamental car aerodynamic efficiency can do do you really need DRS playing around with that i don't really think you do i do think it's always been a sticking plaster i agree with what he said that it, it is a necessary evil but perhaps sometimes it goes beyond that because there have been so so many times over the years now where the DRS hasn't had the effect it's meant to have, which is just to make the braking zones contestable. Instead, you just have these drive-by passes, which are just frankly ridiculous and very, very boring to watch. They're anti-racing. Except, of course, for that group of drivers who are stuck behind the extra wide. Williams of Alex Albon, Yolande Strolls, Lando Norris, Yuki Tsunoda, Joe Guanyu, Daniel Ricciardo. I bet they think the DRS isn't halfway powerful enough. That's a very good point. I guess it's ultimately the... Uh, the uh, strength of the DRS is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? As always, and yes, DRS is always going to be controversial and would agree that uh, perhaps it was a little bit too powerful here, so maybe there are some ways to evolve it. Well, thanks as always to Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell Malm for your insight. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen as there's loads to read there from Scott, Mark, myself, Gary Anderson and the rest of the team. Check out our sister podcast, including Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories, and also have a look at our video channel on YouTube. With more driver market shenanigans and the Dutch Grand Prix at Zandvoort in the coming week, stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.